I'm going to do something that is, I think, important, very important. And as I work through the week with a variety of teachings, I do and am very concerned on the Sundays. Lord, what would you have me share? It's not that I don't know where I'm at. It's that I'm asking, Lord, where would you have me share to address your people? Because God's people are in interesting times right now. We're in a contemporary time right now of being kind of turned over. We have differences of opinion about many things, but one of the issues right now is the church standing with regard to governance. And so realizing even that there may be differences of opinion, the only thing that can bring us to at least a point of not only understanding, but of also giving liberty and allowance is the word of God. Different bodies are functioning differently, but hopefully, prayerfully, we are not deviating from what God's word has given to us, what the spirit of God is telling us to do. And one of the examples that I really chose to cite, though I'm not going to take you there, because much of this will do with being a statesman now, giving to you the heart of a pastor who penned a document, who much like the old days would have transferred this or dispatched it from one person to another, to another, to another, and it came to me. It was confirmed as worthy of being not only read, but of being shared. And because it is also very deep in anchoring us in scriptures, I'm going to do that as well as to anchor you in a word that corresponds to it. But I do believe in these times there are necessities which require us to be encouraged by statesmen in the faith. And in particular, where there's confusion with regard to government. So... As I said before, even last week, in fact, you'll hear a quote from that, which I did not know this pastor would have quoted, but it makes sense as to why he would have. But that we are able to honor God in conscience, freedom and liberty, to come, to not come, to come as you are, to come however, again, you may be feeling is the need. So that's with face masks or face shields or plastic bubbles or helmets or hazmat suits, you know, you're welcome. And I sincerely mean that. I sincerely mean that. You're welcome as you are. I think this will be a very highly encouraging document for you. And after having uh, the privilege of being able to read it, and so it's going to have a different kind of feel to it because it will be an oration of transferring to you a document penned from the heart of a pastor. Not me, but I'm in agreement with it. And so it'll have just a different presentation. But then I'm going to tell you where you can find it to do further study with it. And prayerfully, it'll be encouraging to you. Prayerfully, it will be. If not, then we'll see what the Lord would have for us in the next week or two. But I do want to thank you for being here as well for those who are listening in. And we do have a listening audience of believers that in another area, according to conscience and their faith, where they're at, no less than where we are at, no greater than where we are at. 
but in how they are operating. So you may say, you were going to cite two people. The two people I was going to cite, but I'm not going to take time to get you back, there's the differences between personalities. Ezra and Nehemiah are classic prophets. They were great leaders. They had dispositions that were uniquely different. And because I've introduced them, you can research it out. But where one would address the people, and if necessary, pull their beards out and rip their garments, there was another who pulled his beard out and ripped his own garments. We have that in the body. We have unique personalities. God uses both. But he has called us, though, now to a standard that doesn't emphasize those differences. It's a gospel of peace. And it's a gospel of respect. It's a gospel of love. It is a gospel of freedom and liberty. And so with that, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to go ahead and share with you, which came across my desk, and the idea here is to present something that as a statesman, but also as a pastor, I think you'll find encouragement in weighing things out, directing your heart, and perhaps encouraging others that are confused in these times. This is from Grace Community Church. It's pastored by MacArthur Jr., and he's a, he's a faithful pastor. He's been doing this for probably 40, maybe 50 years, I would say, about 82 years of age now. And so in the read of it, it should probably be just about five minutes, I'm thinking. But John MacArthur Jr. is the son of a father well-known as well in commentary and in biblical um, theology. And so it's a son that follows his father and a very interesting generation of men. So from his heart, he's titled this, Christ, not Caesar, is head of the church. Again, this can be found on the website grace to you, gty.org. And he has titled it, as well, a biblical case for the church's duty to remain open. Before I advance on that, you will want to be able to visit, and I'll be teaching on this probably in one of the weekly devotionals, is the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians quite simply declares that Jesus, God, is preeminent We've heard the term eminent before. It's used in governance. Eminent domain quite simply means that in situations in which there is the necessity for governance to take over, it's a qualifier for why they can take over. And that can be at times very sorrowful for a people who by constraint of law have no argument to make. If you have a home in which that home is deemed by the government necessary either to be allocated or the land on allocated, you can lose it. And it doesn't even mean that you will be reimbursed for it. There are land laws 
And there are decisions at times in governance in which that word eminence means superior. We're superior to your emotions, to your investments, to your history. And it can stand anchored in law. There have been many griefs over that. There have also been appeals concerning it. But the reason that I want to say that is the government does not say preeminent. God says preeminent, which means where one has positionally an overwhelming judication over a people group, the Lord declares himself as preeminent, meaning superior to superior. He is over all any who declare themselves to be superior. In piety, certain religious groups, eminence is used as a proper noun. That's not used for me. It is for some. I disagree with it as usage in that regard. But in Colossians, picking it up here, I'm going to take you to verse 9. Paul pens this and he says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Take note of that. That is, he defines the preeminence of Christ. He asks for us, as in prayer, that we are filled with the knowledge of his will. That means in all wisdom and, listen to this, spiritual understanding. We need to understand the times that we're in. We need to know that everything that we are going through not only hints of, but is clearly identifying times that are changing as the Lord is coming closer and closer to the revelation of himself and ultimately us brought into heaven. These are, in fact, end times. Paul continues to write that we walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. I'll stop there. In all that we do, we're to fully please him. And it means that some conscience can be exercised with liberty and freedom that has a different emphasis or inflection than what we may be doing right now. But it doesn't mean that what we're doing right now is less than what another person is doing. Nor does it mean that it's contrary, per se, to what another person is doing. It has a difference to it. But the bottom line is, Paul pens and says that we are to have a knowledge of God. We're to walk worthy, and it is to be fully pleasing to him. Verse 11 declares, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and longsuffering with joy. Have you been tapped into lately with all patience and long-suffering and as well to do so in joy as we've come through a season of teaching in the book of James, considered all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials? Have you encountered various trials? And if so, have you done so in joy? And if you've done so in joy, then has there been revelation in the knowledge and of the wisdom of doing what is worthy of the calling and what is also pleasing to the Lord? 
Again, when this book was penned, it was to make with certainty and clarity that there is a preeminence of God. He's overall. He's sanctioned all. In fact, Paul continues to write on this very issue. And so let me continue. First of all, in verse 12, we're to give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So we're partakers of an inheritance, and we are saints. Verse 13, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or principalities, or powers. All things were created through him and for him. What does this mean? Preeminent, superior to any that would say is superior. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head, notice this, of the body, the church. We're the church, we're his body, he's our head. He tells us what to do, how to do it, when to do it, why to do it. It's for him. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have, closing word here, the preeminence, superiority to all who would proclaim superiority. I'm going to read this as a pastor and as a statesman transferring this document, as in the old days it would have been done. That's how information got passed. Oral tradition is what it was called. It preceded written tradition. So ears were attentive. Our ears are less attentive because we get so much of it that what we want is silence. God says, I don't want silence on this issue concerning me. I want it to be orated. I want it to be understood. And then I want people to stand in faith. But remember, where we stand in faith is not only according to conscience, but how the Spirit is giving us liberty and freedom. So I'm reading this now from John MacArthur, Jr., pastor of uh, the Grace Community Church, and he begins, Christ is Lord of all. He is the one true head of the church. Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verse 22, 5, 23, and Colossians 1, verse 18. He is also King of kings, sovereign over every earthly authority, 1 Timothy 6.15, Revelation 17.14, and 19, verse 16. Grace Community Church has always stood immovably on those biblical principles. As his people, we are subject to his will and commands as revealed in the scripture. Therefore, we cannot and will not acquiesce to a government-imposed moratorium on our weekly congregational worship or other regular corporate gatherings. Compliance would be disobedience to our Lord's clear commands. Some will think such a firm statement is inexorably in conflict with the command to be subject to governing authorities laid out 
in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. Scripture does not mandate careful, conscientious obedience to all governing authority, including kings, governors, employers, and their angels. In Peter's words, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable, 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Insofar as government authorities do not attempt to assert ecclesiastical authority or issue orders that forbid our obedience to God's law, their authority is to be obeyed whether we agree with their rulings or not. In other words, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 still bind the conscience of individual Christians. We are to obey our civil authorities as powers that God himself has ordained. Paragraph 3. However, while civil government is invested with divine authority to rule the state, neither of those texts, nor any other, grants civil uh, rulers or civic rulers jurisdiction over the church. God has established three institutions with limits that must be respected. And I need to go back and retrieve that. God has established three institutions with human society, the family, the state, and the church. Each institution has a sphere of authority with judicial limits that must be respected. A father's authority is limited to his own family. Church leaders' authority, which is delegated to them by Christ, is limited to church matters. And government is specifically tasked with the oversight and protection of civil peace and well-being within the boundaries of a nation or community. God has not granted civic rulers authority over the doctrine, practice, or polity of the church. The biblical framework limits the authority of each institution to its specific jurisdiction. The church does not have the right to meddle in the affairs of individual families and ignore parental authority. Parents do not have authority to manage civil matters while circumventing government officials. And similarly, government officials have no right to interfere in ecclesiastical matters in a way that undermines or disregards the God-given authority of pastors and of elders. When any one of these three institutions exceeds the bounds of its jurisdiction, it is the duty of the other institutions to curtail that overreach. Therefore, when any government official issues orders regulating worship, such as bans on singing, caps on attendance, that means the limits of attendance, or prohibitions against gatherings and services, he steps outside the legitimate bounds of his God-ordained authority as a civic official and arrogates to himself authority that God expressly grants only to the Lord Jesus Christ as sovereign over his creation, his kingdom, his church. His rule is mediated to local churches through those pastors and elders who teach the word. Matthew 16, verse 18 through 19. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 4 through 2. Therefore, in response to the recent state order requiring churches in California to limit or suspend all meetings indefinitely, we, the pastors and elders of Grace Community Church, especially inform our civic leaders that they have exceeded their legitimate jurisdiction and faithfulness to Christ prohibits us from observing the restrictions they want to impose on our corporate worship services. 
Said in another way, it has never been the prerogative of civil government to order, modify, forbid, or mandate worship. When, how, and how often the church worships is not subject to Caesar. Caesar himself is subject to God. Jesus affirmed that principle when he told Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. John chapter 19, verse 11. And because Christ is head of the church, ecclesiastical matters pertain to his kingdom, not Caesar's. Jesus drew a stark distinction between those two kingdoms, and he said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Mark chapter 12, verse 17. And our Lord himself always rendered to Caesar what was Caesar's, but he never offered to Caesar what belongs solely to God. As pastors and elders, we cannot hand over to earthly authorities any privilege or power that belongs solely to Christ as head of his church. Pastors and elders are the ones to whom Christ has given the duty and the right to exercise his spiritual authority in the church. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4, Hebrews 13, verse 7 through 17. And scripture alone defines how and whom they are to serve. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 4. They have no duty to follow orders from a civil government attempting to regulate the worship or governance of the church. In fact, pastors who cede their Christ-delegated authority to the church to a civil rule have abdicated their responsibility before the Lord and violated the God-ordained spheres of authority as much as the secular official who illegitimately imposes his authority upon the church. Our church's doctrinal statement has included this paragraph for more than 40 years. We teach the autonomy of the local church, free from any external authority or control, with the right of self-government and freedom from the interference of any hierarchy of individuals or organizations, Titus 1, verse 5. We teach that it is scriptural for true churches to cooperate with each other for the presentation and propagation of the faith. Each local church, however, through its elders and their interpretation and application of Scripture should be able to be the sole judge of the measure and method of its cooperation. The elders should determine all other matters of membership, policy, discipline, benevolence, and government as well. Acts 15, verses 19 through 31. Chapter 20, verse 28. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 through 7 and 13. And then 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. In short, as the church, we do not need the state's permission to serve and worship our Lord as he has commanded. The church is Christ's precious bride, 2 Corinthians 11, 2, and Ephesians 5, 23 to 27. She belongs to him alone. She exists by his will and serves under his authority. He will tolerate no assault on her purity and no infringement of his headship over her. All of that was established when Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Matthew 16, verse 18. Christ's own authority is far above all rule and authority and power 
and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And God the Father has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, Ephesians 1, verses 21 through 23. Accordingly, the honor that we rightly owe our earthly governors and magistrates, Romans 13, verse 7, does not include compliance when such officials attempt to subvert sound doctrine, corrupt biblical morality, exercise ecclesiastical authority, or supplant Christ as head of the church in any other way. The biblical order is clear. Christ is Lord over Caesar, not vice versa. Christ, not Caesar, is head of the church. Conversely, the church does not, in any sense, rule the state. Again, these are distinct kingdoms, and Christ is sovereign over both. Neither church nor state has any higher authority than that of Christ himself, who declared, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28, verse 18. Notice that we are not making a constitutional argument. Even though the First Amendment of the United States Constitution expressly affirms this principle in its opening words, Congress shall make no law respecting any establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The right we are appealing to was not created by the Constitution. It is one of those unalienable rights granted solely by God, who ordained human government and established both the extent and the limitations of the state's authority, Romans 13, 1 through 7. Our argument, therefore, is purposely not grounded in the First Amendment. It is based on the same biblical principles that the amendment itself founded upon, the exercise of true religion is a divine duty given to men and women created in God's image, Genesis 1, 26 through 27, Acts 4, verse 18 through 20, 5 through 29, Matthew 22, 16 through 22. In other words, freedom of worship is a command of God, not a privilege granted by the state. An additional point needs to be made in this context. Christ is always Faithful and true, Revelation 19, verse 11. Human governments are not so trustworthy. Scripture says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5, verse 19. That refers, of course, to Satan. John 12, 31 and 16, 11 call him the ruler of this world, meaning he wields power and influence through this world's political systems, Luke 4 through 6, or 4, verse 6, Ephesians 2, 2 and 6, 12, Jesus said of him, he is a liar and the father of lies, John 8, 44. History is full of painful reminders that government power is easily and frequently abused for evil purposes. Politicians may manipulate statistics and the media can cover up or camouflage inconvenient truths. So discerning truth or a discerning church cannot passively or automatically comply if the government orders a shutdown of congregational meetings, even if the reason given is a concern for public health and safety. Almost concluding, the church by definition is an assembly. 
That is the literal meaning of the Greek word for church, ecclesia, the assembly of the called out ones. A non-assembling assembly is a contradiction in terms. Christians are therefore commanded not to forsake the practice of meeting together, Hebrews 10, 25. And no earthly state has a right to restrict, delimit, forbid the assembling of believers. We have always supported the underground church in nations where Christian congregational worship is deemed illegal by the state. When officials restrict church attendance to a certain number, they attempt to impose a restriction that in principle makes it impossible for the saints to gather as the church. When officials prohibit singing and worship services, they attempt to impose a restriction that in principle makes it impossible for the people of God to obey the commands of Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16. When officials mandate distancing, they attempt to impose a restriction that in principle makes it impossible to experience the close communion between believers that is commanded in Romans 16, verse 16, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 20, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 12, and 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 26. All those spheres we must submit to our Lord. Although we in America may be unaccustomed to government intrusion into the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is by no means the first time in church history that Christians have had to deal with government overreach or hostile rulers. As a matter of fact, persecution by the church from government authorities has been the norm and not the exception throughout church history. Indeed, Scripture says all who Desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. Historically, the two main persecutors have always been secular government and false religion. Most of Christianity's martyrs have died because they refused to obey such authorities. This is, after all, what Christ promised. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, John 15.20. In the last of the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you matthew 5 verses 11 through 12. four more paragraphs as government policy moves further away from biblical principles and as legal and political pressures against the church intensify, we must recognize that the Lord may be using these pressures as means of purging to reveal the true church. Succumbing to governmental overreach may cause churches to remain closed indefinitely. How can the true church of Jesus Christ distinguish herself in such a hostile climate? There's only one way, bold allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even where government seems sympathetic to the church, Christian leaders have often needed to push back against aggressive state officials. In Calvin's Geneva, for example, church officials at times needed to fend off attempts by the city council to govern aspects of worship, church polity, and church discipline. The Church of England has never fully reformed, precisely because the British Crown and Parliament have always meddled in church affairs. In 1662, the Puritans were ejected from their pulpits because they refused to bow to government mandates regarding the use of the Book of Common Prayer. 
the wearing of vestments and other ceremonial aspects of state-regulated worship, the British monarch still claims to be the supreme governor and titular head of the Anglican Church. Two paragraphs. But again, Christ is the head, the one true head of his church, and we intend to honor that vital truth in all our gatherings. For that preeminent reason, we cannot accept and will not bow to the intrusive restrictions government officials now want to impose on our congregation. We offer this response without rancor and not out of our hearts that are combative or rebellious. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17, but with a strong, sobering awareness that we must answer to the Lord Jesus for the stewardship he has given to us as shepherds of his precious flock. To government officials, we respectfully say with the apostles, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, Acts 4, 19. And with our unhesitating reply to the question in the same as the apostles, we must obey God rather than men, Acts 5, 29. Our prayer, closing, is that every faithful congregation will stand with us in obedience to our Lord as Christians have done through the centuries. Yeah. So, you know, at times the oration from the pulpit can be exceptional, but also, I believe, intended to be exceptional. It's an encouragement to us. You know, what we are going through today requires a decision. Now, mind you, I do want to say this closing and punctuation. We're here today. Praise God. We have a place that God's provided. Praise God. We're less than we once were. I grieve. But I know that, again, it's only because I love seeing people. I love the family together. But I'm very aware that the family of God has decisions that they must make. This is an exhortation to the pastor, okay? It's not pointing a finger at you guys, and it's not pointing a finger at those we do not see. It's not pointing a finger at the government. It's stating clearly that as long as I choose to live by this word, governing as a pastor, as I'm supposed to, then I believe that the outcome will be fruitful. And you're welcome to be offended if you must, but hopefully you're encouraged as I believe God wanted you to be. And we don't have to grab our pitchforks or our muskets. We don't have to do, go and parade. We don't have to do any of that. But we should be praying. We should be praying. And we should be joyful. There should be something about us coming here that just goes, man, those guys are having fun and we're not. And we are because, in my opinion, we're, we're doing what God has touched our hearts to do. But we do need to be mindful that as we meet here in freedom and liberty, we're not trying to be snooty or rebellious. We're actually trying to be compliant with the Word of God in the corporate sense. The individuals, you have your rights. The corporate sense of the church as an institution no less than any of those that exist today in governing this land. We're an institution established by God 
the Lord is preeminent over this institution and of all institutions.